The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One of the people that pleaded guilty, Joshua James, described being instructed, in effect, uh, to be prepared to uh, take his guns to the White House and to prevent whoever, the National Guard or whoever might appear, to prevent uh, Trump from being forcibly removed. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 26th, 2022. Stuart Rhodes, the chieftain of the Oath Keepers, goes on trial this week for seditious conspiracy. The trial is expected to run about five weeks, with jury selection sort of already underway. The opening of the trial gives us a great opportunity to catch up with Roger Parloff on the Oath Keepers, the chief defendant Stuart Rhodes, and the larger project of criminal accountability for the January 6th riot and insurrection. We talked about the ever-mounting statistics of convictions and sentencing in January 6th-related matters. We talked about Stuart Rhodes, who is he, and his weird journey from Yale Law School to conspiracy theorizing and violent uprisings. We talked about the specifics of the indictment, what makes Proud Boys different from Oath Keepers, who was the pointy end of the spear, and who was standing around waiting for the president to invoke the Insurrection Act. And we talked about the law under which this is taking place, the famed seditious conspiracy statute. It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 26th. Roger Parloff keeps his oath. I want to start with just a basic overview of where we are in the January 6th criminal process. People know that there have been 800-some-odd cases charged, that a bunch of pleas have happened, that a bunch of misdemeanor cases have been resolved. But what does the big picture look like at this point? Well, there's 870 cases been brought with federal charges. And Almost half are already disposed of, at least in terms of convictions. 390 guilty pleas, um, another 16 convictions after trial. So maybe 46, 47 percent have been disposed of. 
we're also beginning to get our first sentences uh, after trial, which are um, appreciably uh, longer than the guilty plea sentences were, that some people were upset about, although they are still not as long as the government would like them to be. But um, we're getting somewhere. Yeah, so let's break that down a little bit. When you say that uh, 360, did you say? I think there's been 300. I'm using the figures from the George Washington University program on extremism, and uh, they believe there have been 390 guilty pleas already. Okay, so 390 guilty pleas. What do we know about sentencing in those cases so far? So a lot of those were misdemeanor cases, so they are light sentences. But the heaviest sentences so far, there were two uh, for 63 months. Those were assaulting a a police officer with a uh, dangerous weapon. Mark Ponder and um, I think Robert Palmer each got 63 months. And uh, I think Joshua Pruitt, who uh, is a proud boy uh, but pled guilty, got 55 months. Uh, That was for corrupt obstruction of an official proceeding. And there have also been a series of cases that have now gone to trial, been tried, and resulted in one case, I think, a partial acquittal, and in some cases, conviction. So what does the landscape of trial look like? Yeah, we've had 15 completed trials, contested trials, of 17 men. Uh, They are all men. Eight by jury, nine by bench trial. That means a non-jury trial. And uh, in the jury trials, uh, the government has uh, uh, convicted all eight men uh, on 43 out of 43 counts. In the bench trials, uh, uh, nine went to trial. There was a complete acquittal on a misdemeanor case. And then uh, we've had convictions on 43 out of 53 counts. So basically, you don't want to – you want to roll your dice – in front of a judge in the District of Columbia, you don't want to mess with D.C. juries if you're a January 6th defendant. I think that is certainly the message if you drew Judge Trevor McFadden. All of the the non-convictions have occurred before him. Now, I, I, I'm, I shouldn't criticize – I'm not criticizing him. I, I was present for one of those trials, and uh, I would have – the three – counts he acquitted on, I would have done the same. But I do think it's true that people uh, who are, draw him, because he has, he has said that he, he feels these cases are being treated more harshly than the Portland riot cases. He's the only judge that feels this way or has expressed this. And he even said at one point that he thought it would be reasonable to possibly give lighter sentences in order to even up uh, the score. So um, so if you happen to draw Trevor McFadden, you have a reason to say, hey, I don't want to roll my dice with the jury. I'd rather roll the dice with this guy. I think that's right. And um, I think that of the nine completed bench trials, I think that around seven were before him. And there's three pending, I should say. So what do the, in, in the cases, the non-misdemeanor cases that have gone to trial, what do these sentences look like? The government's gotten some actually big cases won. Uh, what kind of time are they getting? 
So it's ranged from four years to 10 years. Uh, and since there's only about five of them, I'll just say uh, 48 months, 60 months, two at 87 months, and that's seven years and a quarter if, if you can't do it in your head, and one at 120 months, that's 10 years. And uh, 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 the government uh, asked for appreciably more in, in all of the cases they asked for more, and uh, they, they actually sought 17 and a half years for one and, and uh, 15 years for another. So these are less, but they're still very appreciable. So I'm, I'm curious, you're, you're watching this stuff as closely as anybody. Have these sentences been less than you would have expected, about what you would have expected, more than you would have expected? In other words, if you were to to, if you were the government, would you be, you know, they always ask for more than they get, or they often ask for more than they get. Uh, would you be satisfied with these sentences, or do these feel light or heavy to you? I think they were uh, sensible. I thought one, uh, the, the Guy Reffitt sentence, uh, who, who got 87 months, I thought that was a little light. He brought a loaded gun with him to the Capitol impeded officers, uh, had body armor, and uh, destroyed. It, it was very, very clear he, uh, he was there to obstruct the proceeding. He continued afterwards. Uh, he destroyed evidence. I, I thought that was a light sentence. But uh, I, I can't really second-guess too much more. So on the whole, then, 15 trials, 390 guilty pleas, a range of sentencing that now, and we're still dealing with the bottom half of the 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 barrel in seriousness. Uh, so, how do you assess the institutional performance of the criminal justice apparatus uh, one year and three quarters after January sixth, two thousand twenty-one? I think it's doing well. I think that even you know when I say the sentences, might, some seemed light and some were below what the government asked. You know, I think what they're what the judges are concerned about is not having a huge gap between the guilty plea sentences and and the uh, sentences after trial, so that you aren't being terribly punished for uh, t- uh, uh, invoking your right to a trial, uh, constitutional right. So, you know, sixty three months, like I said, was the longest guilty plea we've had. Couple eighty seven months, one hundred and twenty months, and then one beneath that. So, and then, and then the the records, even even in the bench trials, it's a extremely good record for the government. So, we've only had we've had one acquittal, and we had three dismissals, but I think two of them were because the defendant died. So, uh, you know, that's less than one half of one percent of uh, 870 cases. So I think the government and uh, the judges are uh, trying hard and doing well. So we are now coming up on a period in which many of the more serious cases are headed to trial, assuming they don't plead out uh, on the eve of trial. 400 cases resolved, 470 to go. What What is the pig and the python look like? How, how big is the bump that is go- about to go through the system? I think we're also seeing more guilty pleas now of, you know, as as the trial approaches, a lot of people plead out. 
And uh, I mean, that's always true. But even even with the serious cases, and people know sort of what they're looking at at this point, they can see what's what people have gotten in similar cases. So I, I, I think it's actually, we're seeing more guilty pleas to serious felony cases. Joshua Pruitt was a pretty serious case, the, you know, these assaults on police officers. We also had five stipulated trials. It's an unusual procedure, but it's basically a guilty plea that lets you appeal one count. But uh, we're, we're, now, we're finally also going to reach the top charges, the seditious conspiracy charges. Uh, that's the next big step. Right. So that starts kind of now with the trial of Stuart Rhodes, the Oath Keeper in Chief. Talk to us about the Stuart Rhodes case, which, as I understand it, is going to trial this coming week or sort yeah. of going to trial this coming week. Yes. If Depending on how you define coming to trial. The jury selection will begin uh, September 27th. Uh, it's actually sort of already begun. Uh, the, the questionnaires have been filled out by the first 150 uh, venire men, the sort of uh, the jury, uh, potential jury people. They're, they're aiming to start taking evidence uh, hearing the openings on October 3rd. That will be a trial of five oath keepers charged with seditious conspiracy. The indictment really charges nine, but they didn't have a courtroom big enough, and it's just uh, quite difficult to try that many people at once. And um, so the other four will go to trial in late November. That's the schedule. And we've also had uh, three guilty pleas from oath keepers of seditious conspiracy we should be expecting them to probably testify. And in fact, we had three earlier guilty pleas of Oath Keepers involved in this conspiracy. So those are at least six people that might testify. Anyway, it's supposed to go five weeks, and the top charge is seditious conspiracy, which is a big deal. We don't see that very often. Yeah, and so let's first talk about the three who have pled guilty here. Because they are cooperating, they have not been sentenced yet, right? That's right. I would have to refamiliarize myself with their guidelines. They were hefty because seditious conspiracy is it's a maximum 20-year penalty, which is the same as uh, the top charge until now, which was the uh, corrupt obstruction of an official proceeding. But it's actually more serious in the sense that the sentencing guidelines treat them more seriously. The only crime they use as an analogy, they don't, they don't have seditious conspiracy in their little table, but the closest thing to it is treason. And, and so that results in a pretty serious uh, set of uh, sentencing guidelines. But we don't know at this stage what a Stuart Rhodes, we have no benchmark uh, within the January 6th world to know what Stuart Rhodes is realistically looking at if he's convicted at trial, right? That's right. Now, uh, you know, if he were convicted of the top charge, other, you know, the government has already asked for 17 and a half years for assaulting a police officer. I would assume uh, they would ask for at least 20. Uh, I mean, that's the max. His One of his lawyers in a recent filing, claimed that the government was trying to put him away for life. And uh, the government 
pushed back on that and said they've they've never said that. I just don't know what what that lawyer was basing that on. And that lawyer is a very recent entrant to the whole thing. All right. So we are going to we'll get into his possible defenses in a little while, but I want to tack back for uh, listeners who don't have instant recall of Stuart Rhodes or the Oath Keepers. He is, of course, shares with our guest today uh, a, a graduation from the Yale Law School. Why is Stuart Rhodes an important figure in January 6th, and what is he accused of here beyond behind the, the word seditious conspiracy? Yeah, he founded the Oath Keepers in 2009. And just to set the stage a little bit. Uh, the Oath Keepers, remember, were the group that all wore sort of militia-like costumes, military-style costumes, and there was there were two stacks, they call them, people that walked up the East Capitol steps, each with their arm on the shoulder of the person in front of them, in a very disciplined military way, went up the steps. Uh, they were very recognizable and uh, very, sort of very menacing looking. I, I would say that I would distinguish them from the Proud Boys, who their top people are also charged with seditious conspiracy. The Proud Boys were really sort of at crucial places, at crucial times in penetrating the barriers for the first time, breaking the window for the first time, really breaching the... They were the pointy end of the spear. Yes, exactly. So that's not really true of the Oath Keepers. Now, the Oath Keepers' uh, rhetoric uh, was much, much worse than the Proud Boys, beginning, going back to November 2020, very publicly talking about, you know, preventing Biden from taking office talking in frightening ways about civil war, bloody civil war, sometimes publicly. But still, they were not the the group that breached the Capitol. They sort of held back, and only after it was breached, it it was then that they marched up the steps. So it's it's a little different uh, fact pattern. On the other hand, they did hoard a large amount of weapons uh, at a Comfort Inn in Virginia, they did seem to be gearing up for some kind of civil war. Sketch out for us what the government's case is likely to look like. Yeah. So they begin talking in a very menacing way about that Trump ought to call, invoke the Insurrection Act, and he needs to call them up as uh, sort of the militia and help prevent Biden from taking power. This Chinese communist puppet is uh, what uh, Rhodes is always calling Biden, um, both publicly and privately. And he has, uh, eventually they have a signal chat system, so, uh, which is uh, an encrypted system where they, there are several, several channels actually, where the Oath Keepers talk among themselves. And the most dramatic thing that they are that they do, as you said, is they they actually store several quick reaction forces across the Potomac River in Virginia where they stockpile weapons. 
Uh, one is in a Comfort Inn in Arlington, about, um, you know, really only 10, 15 minutes from the capital with good traffic. And uh, one, uh, they also have weapons at uh, Hilton Garden Inn in uh, a little further out in Vienna, Virginia, uh, maybe 40 minutes. And so that's a, a pretty serious-looking uh, thing. They they do have a defense planned for that, which I can discuss if you would like. Yeah, so I'm going to come to the defense momentarily. Yeah. I, I guess before we get there, I want to flesh out. You're making this sound a little bit anodyne, actually. they Yeah, they had some nasty rhetoric, but they're not the pointy end of the spear in the riot, and they're you know, they're hoarding weapons, but the weapons are legal in Virginia. That's why you have weapons in Virginia. That's what Virginia is for. It's the place to store your weapons so you don't bring them into the District of Columbia. Why is this charged as a seditious conspiracy case rather than as, you know, guys got violent in objecting to the, like, what distinguishes this case from the average group of guys who marched up in military formation into the Capitol. They're, they're going to present evidence that th- they had decided that regardless of what Trump did, they were going to stop Biden from taking office. And the evidence against uh, certainly Rhodes, and I don't know how many others, will be that even after January 6th, they continued to stockpile weapons. And, of course, at this point, Trump has not invoked the Insurrection Act and um, continue to plot to prevent Biden from taking office. And, and there is uh, one of the people that pleaded guilty, Joshua James, described uh, being instructed, and I, I don't have the, the language in front of me, but in effect, uh, to be prepared to um, take his guns to the White House and to prevent whoever, the National Guard or whoever might appear, to prevent uh, Trump from being forcibly removed. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So is it fair to say that the Oath Keepers, at the end of the day, engaged in less violent activity than the Proud Boys, but may have plotted more violent activities. So it's more the more the conspiracy part of the seditious conspiracy, maybe a little bit less of the seditious part of the seditious conspiracy, though both have both. 
That's right. That's a good way to put it. The uh, the rhetoric was more extreme with the Oath Keepers. And I think the stockpiling of the stockpiling of weapons both before and after was was more dramatic. I mean, I think they say $17,000 worth of weapons and ammunition and, and sort of other things, scopes and mounts and all of that before, and then another maybe $6,000, $10,000 after. But no, they do not. Only one or two are charged with assaulting police officers uh, or, or impeding officers even, they're, ma- they're mainly charged with obstructing the uh, proceeding and uh, destroying evidence afterwards, sort of conventional obstruction of justice. All right. So what is the defense of Stuart Rhodes going to look like? You alluded to some new entrants into the <laughs> the field of the defense, the Stuart Rhodes and Oathkeeper defense bar. What arguments do they have? Why on earth are they letting this go to trial? So they they have a couple interesting things. With respect to those QRFs, the quick, quick reaction forces, what they're going to argue is that they anticipated or hoped that President Trump would uh, invoke the Insurrection Act. And just pause here and remind listeners what the Insurrection Act is yep. and what uh, – what basis they had to expect that Trump might invoke it. Yeah, well, the Insurrection Act enables the president under certain circumstances to send, you know, National Guard forces to, for instance, a state that has requested them that's battling with maybe rioting in the or or looting in the wake of a hurricane or there might be an insurrection there might be there have been race riots they were sent to los angeles uh, after the rodney king verdict triggered rioting um i think that's the last time it's been used um been used maybe 30 times in the us history but there isn't a lot of case law about it and also it's usually uh, they send you know, National Guard troops, they don't call up, you know... Irregulars. Uh, irregulars. And in addition, it's usually to quell riots, not to start them. <laughs> it, it's, you know, here the claim was that, well, they had stolen, Biden had stolen the election and uh, they needed to call in... There are different ways to express this, to express it. Maybe Antifa would attack on January 6th and they would need the troops to repel them. But it really sounds like, of course, they were going to use the troops to overturn the election, which is not the typical use for the Insurrection Act. The trouble is that historically it's not been used often. And you have these 19th century Supreme Court rulings that seem to give sort of unfettered discretion to the president. They don't really, they haven't second-guessed them. No president has used it in order to try to stay in power despite an election. So no one really knows the legal status of all of this. But anyway, so they're going to say they were waiting to be called up as, you know, uh, unorganized militia, and that's what these weapons were. And so it wasn't a conspiracy to break the law. The, the prosecution's response will be, uh, I think, twofold. One is they apparently have evidence that 
Rhodes said from time to time that the whole Insurrection Act thing was a, quote, legal cover, that it was basically a ruse and that they were going to prevent Biden from taking power, whatever it took, no matter what Trump did. So that's sort of the prosecution response, number one. And then the other is that, of course, Trump didn't invoke it and they entered the Capitol anyway. And uh, they're apparently going to present evidence. They do claim that at least some of the people in the stack were trying to uh, kidnap or, you know, find Pelosi and other congressmen. I'm not sure what their evidence will be there. And then, of course, that the plot continues even after January 6th to try to prevent the inauguration from from taking place. Okay. But I, I I have a sort of antecedent legal question here, which is, assume you didn't have that stuff, right, the stuff that undermines the factual basis of this claim. Is it plausible to say, no, I wasn't there trying to prevent the – obstruct the the government from certifying the election? I was there. I cashed my weapons in Virginia where they were legal. I fully expected Donald Trump to call me up as a sort of irregular member of the militia to calm things down or whatever happened, uh, whatever whatever it was they were expecting him to do. And, you know, I just, you know, was there waiting for the Insurrection Act to be, oh, yeah, I may have gotten caught up a little bit in the some mayhem once it got started, but that's not why I was there. Uh, so there's no real conspiracy here. There's just a, a a conspiracy to follow the Insurrection Act when invoked that kind of went a little awry. Yeah. Is that a viable defense? Will, will the judge even allow that defense to be made? It sounds like he is going to. And it sounds to me Judge Maida, I think, would have preferred not to. I think he, he thought that maybe the law would be so open and shut that these people weren't entitled. You know, these there is no such thing as an unorganized militia. Or, uh, he thought it would be more clear-cut and that the prosecution would say, no, keep this evidence out. The prosecution didn't say that. Because they're waiting for, you know, armed Joe Biden fans to show up so he can invoke the Insurrection <laughs> Act. Uh, I think that... They may feel that their evidence is strong enough that on the facts that this defense just doesn't fly. They don't have to sort of get into what did did the Supreme Court rule in 1827 and 1849 on this question. And, and, and also it's that there's evidence that they want to present of, you know, all of the weird plotting going on. Uh, all of the violent threats about the bloody civil war coming. Because uh, often what Tr- Rhodes would say was, Trump better invoke the Insurrection Act, otherwise there will be a bloody civil war. So the jury is going to hear this term, and they're going to have to have it defined one way or the other. And I, I think they must have felt that they actually gave made a mixed signals, but they they felt that they they did not ask him to preclude this sort of argument altogether. Maida was concerned though because it sounds a lot like there's such a thing as a public authority defense or a, a entrapment by estoppel. This is what 
Bannon tried to use, what Navarro is still trying to use. That, And it's here it's in this anticipatory version. It's not that Trump didn't tell me I could do this, but we were preparing in case he did. And and that's something that has, hasn't ever been used before in anticipatory public authority defense. And so there was some thought that maybe Maida should not permit this in at all. But in the end, the prosecution didn't really ask for that. And, and so Maida didn't try to do that on his own. So how many people are going to trial with Rhodes and how many other Oath Keepers are there awaiting trial? Uh, this trial will involve five people, including Rhodes. There will be four more that are, are charged with seditious conspiracy. And then there, I don't have the exact number, there's approximately 11 more that are charged with conspiracy, but not seditious conspiracy. And what about the Proud Boys? When should we expect them to go to trial? I think their trial begins, the first one begins in December. There are several different conspiracy trials there, but the only seditious conspiracy trial involves five people, and I I believe it it goes to trial in December. I should say uh, I am really hoping that the January 6th committee, uh, the House Select Committee, does not bring up the Oath Keepers on uh, September 28th at their hearing, does not bring up the Proud Boys, because they will be handing them another issue on appeal, uh, especially the Oath Keepers. You know, to do this during jury selection would be crazy. So we have to see uh, what happens there. Yeah, and just walk us through that. Why Why does it matter for purposes of their trial what Liz Cheney says at a congressional hearing? Yeah, all of uh, they have all been trying to get both continuances and uh, venue transfers outside of Washington because of the alleged prejudice to the jury pool from the January 6th uh, hearings. And, uh, of course, those hearings are televised nationally. It's not that strong an argument. But there is, uh, there was a case out of Boston, appellate ruling in the 50s, where a guy uh, went to trial very shortly after there was a congressional hearing about him and his case. And the uh, First Circuit, uh, the uh, Court of Appeals up in Boston, did overturn that conviction uh, felt that he should have gotten either more of a continuance or or a, a venue transfer. So I am unaware of a seditious conspiracy case that has been successful since the Sheikh Omar Abdurrahman case in uh, the 90s. The statute has a long and weird history and it has by its terms is super broad. So uh, tell us a little bit about the history of the case, particularly as pertains to attacks on the Capitol. How does this case fit into that? The seditious conspiracy statute begins with the Civil War. It's enacted very shortly after the Civil War starts. And the problem was that the key statute they had for prosecuting rebellion was treason. And uh, treason under the Constitution has uh, some strict uh, limitations in, in, in terms of proof. And so they enacted this uh, originally in 1861 
There was a reenactment in 1871 as part of the Ku Klux Klan Act of, 18, uh, of 1871, and that's uh, the main uh, statute that we're using here. The key language goes like this. If two or more persons in any state or territory, blah, 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 conspire to overthrow, put down, or to destroy by force the government of the United States, or to levy war against them, or to oppose by force the authority thereof, or by force to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law of the United States, dot, 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 they shall each be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 20 years or both. So the key passage for us and for the Oath Keepers is the or by force to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law of the United States. And then the key laws they're talking about are uh, the laws relating to the lawful transfer of presidential power, specifically the uh, 12th and 20th Amendments and the Electoral Count Act. So uh, that's how we get here. The uh, uh, Rahman uh, case, I think they were using the levying war provision and some of the other cases. Now, actually, they recently, when they, uh, uh, in June, when they uh, superseded the indictment or tweaked it, um, they added also the, um, to oppose by force the authority of the United States. So they're apparently trying two different uh, provisions of that law. The law is, despite being broad and apparently very powerful, very seldom used and has sometimes been hard to get convictions under. Uh, What is the distinction in your judgment that the government is making between cases it is merely indicting as conspiracy, cases that it's indicting as sometimes misdemeanor forced entry into, you know, basically trespassing cases and these seditious conspiracy cases. Is there a hallmark of – the hallmark isn't violence because there are a lot of nonviolent – there are a lot of violent cases that are being indicted as assaulting a police officer and you know blocking the uh, functioning of government cases, right? So what is, in your view, the distinction that the, – the charging distinction that the government is making between the cases that it is and isn't indicting as seditious conspiracy? There actually aren't that many true conspiracy cases among the 870 being brought. You know, a lot of people read online that uh, about what was happening, and they did expect it to be violent, and they bought their body armor and they and some weapons, and they came, and they did it, plan to stop the proceeding, uh, at least delay it, and but. Um, I think here you have months and months of planning in a very uh, disciplined and organized way, encrypted messaging. You have a military-style hierarchy. You have military weapons. You have military uniforms uh, and uh, a concerted and, and, and actually an ideology and a, a concerted effort to prevent the transfer of presidential power. It's, it's really of a different order than, the, than what we've seen uh, the, the other cases. One final question, and then we'll wrap. 
Was Stuart Rhodes radicalized by Yale Law School? <laughs> yeah, I I don't know exactly what happened to him. I've I've uh, I don't know him. <laughs> he uh, he graduated in two thousand four. He was um, disbarred by twenty fifteen. People that have described his conduct in law school, it sounds like he was already uh, fairly out there. He, he was a a strong libertarian and worked for um, Ron Paul for a while. But, uh, well, he founded this group in 2009, the Oath Keepers. And uh, it, by then it was really a highly paranoid and bizarre group. You know, they were foreseeing uh, that uh, Barack Obama might be, uh, they were, you take an oath, you know, to not do certain things if the government, that's why you're an Oath Keeper, uh, if the government orders you to. And some of the things that they were anticipating was that, the, you know, the government might blockade cities and turn them into vast concentration camps. You know, so you take an oath to, to fight against, uh, you know, if Barack Obama tries to do that, you won't permit him. Uh, and actually, the things that might come in in this case uh, include a lot of sort of QAnon-type stuff about he wants... Uh, Trump to declassify a great deal of information that he believes will show all of the pedophile, expose all the pedophiles in office, all the pedophiles in Congress. It's it's really it's really uh, it's really out there. We're going to leave it there, Roger Parloff. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer is the long-suffering Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Hey, folks, you know, I know I mention this every time, but some of you still haven't become material supporters of Lawfare. And if you're one of those people, I am right now pointing a finger at you in an accusatory fashion. You are freeloading. You should be supporting this site if you're listening to this podcast regularly. So remedy this matter immediately at patreon.com slash lawfare. That's patreon.com slash lawfare. Make an honest person of yourself. Contribute. The Lawfare podcast is edited by... The one and only Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan, who is still in quarantine in a hotel in China. And as always, thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.